Well, good afternoon. Happy Sabbath. I wish that those of you who are joining us online could see the room here today. Prior to Lily, Albert, and Simon joining us, it was literally Jinha and six other males. <laughs> so we are definitely very um, male-heavy in today's service, but we, we want to thank you, Lily, for joining us, for giving uh, Jinha some company. <laughs> um, we definitely want to say Happy Father's Day uh, to those of you uh, today. <clears throat> um, unfortunately, I wasn't able to join um, last week because I was away on uh, at the Grow Conference and then Right after that, I had the privilege of going to Micah's grade three camp. And so that was three days of spending time with 65 other nine-year-olds, eight-year-old, nine-year-olds, which was definitely an adventure. But I genuinely enjoyed it and I'm really glad I got to spend time with Micah as well. Um, I hope that your week is going well. And as that, as the weather warms up, that you're able to enjoy some of the sunshine that comes through in the warmth as well. Today was an interesting day. Uh, I spent the morning with the Craigieburn Church um, because they have a church plant out there in Craigieburn, and so got to spend time with the church there this morning and then rushed over here and uh, to, to get ready for church. And so anyway, it's good to see all of you, and I'm so glad that for those of you who can join us online that you're doing so as well. So last time I shared, we covered God's mission through families. <clears throat> Not coming off. Uh, last time I shared, we covered God's mission through families, and I shared about generational faith and examples of how Abraham and Sarah's family drew closer to God through each generation. I also shared about how <coughs> when we make our family about God, he is more than able to care for our mistakes. And so today I want to finish God's mission through families with a part two, and today's talk is entitled Discovering God's Mission. <clears throat> In September 2, 1945, thank you. In September 2, 1945, the Japanese surrendered to the Allies aboard the USS Missouri. One of the soldiers who was enlisted in the Japanese Army, his name was Hiro Onoda, and he was trained in unconventional military techniques, including guerrilla warfare, sabotage, counterintelligence, and propaganda. He was sent to Lubang Island in the Philippines after the, after the end of his training in December of 1944, and his mission was to hold off the Americans and the Philippine army for as long as he possibly could. However, when Hira Inoda arrived at Lubang Island, his superior officers refused to let him carry out his assignment because they wanted to fight the invading troops head on. As a result, when the American troops landed on the small island in February 28, 1945, the Japanese forces were soon defeated, and upon seeing what was happening, Onoda recruited three other fellow soldiers and ordered them into the woods with him to engage in his guerrilla war. Onoda and his three compatriots successfully retreated into the into the jungles and they carried out their guerrilla war for the next 29 years <clears throat> so the new the US knew about these guerrilla units um and they had no means of communication with central communication or central um command and so the US military began to spread leaflets about the ceasefire and so uh a couple of a couple of 
Months later, Anoda and his men found these leaflets. They inspected them and they said, ah, this is government propaganda. Uh, discarded the leaflet and continued on with their guerrilla warfare. <clears throat> In 1949, one of Anoda's men realized the war is definitely over and he surrendered himself to the Philippine army. This made the government realize that there are still guerrilla cells out in combat. And so they sent packages from the, from the officers' families begging them to come back home and to surrender. Well, when they received these packages, they had meetings and they discussed our families can only do what their authorities tell, tell them to, but our mission is still to continue on. And so they disregarded their families' pleas to, to surrender. Six years later, Anoda lost another compatriot to a gunshot wound from a search party, as these men were now considered war criminals. In 1972, Anoda's last companion was killed by police as the two men were burning a rice silo. Anoda was now a one-man army fighting against the Philippine government. <clears throat> you can imagine being him in the jungles, just thinking, I'm not giving up. And then being a member of the community in that, in that area, thinking, there's this crazy person hidden in the jungles, and he just will not leave us alone. Except he's armed. <clears throat> So by this time in the 1970s, his stories had become quite, uh, his story had quite a following, and a young man by the name of Norio Suzuki went to Lubang Island and found Anoda. And he said, or he asked him, why don't you surrender? I am proof that this war is over. Anoda's response was, I will not leave my post until a superior officer relieves me of my duty. So after that conversation, Suzuki went back to the Japanese government and reported what he had heard. The government then had to search for his superior officer and flew his superior officer back to Lubang Island to find Anoda, which he eventually did. And he ordered Anoda, please cease fire. The war is well and truly over. So on March 9, 1974, at the age of 52, Hiru Onoda emerged from the jungle, still dressed in his tattered official uniform, with his service rifle and sword still in excellent shape. And by the way, he had 500 rounds left. So you can imagine, this guy was actually doing a lot of damage. He accepted the order from his commander, telling him to lay down his arms, and he then surrendered his sword to the president of the Philippines, and he was pardoned of his war crimes. I couldn't find a legal picture that I could share with you, but if you Google, if you just Google Japanese soldier fighting from post-World War II, he, he will definitely show up. Because Anoda stayed the course of his mission, he became legendary. <clears throat> And today, I want to revisit the story of Abraham and Sarah to explore God's mission <clears throat> to families. So we pick up in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 7, where God gives his mission briefing. He tells Abraham to leave his family's household to a land that he will show them. And he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And I want you to occupy this land here in Canaan. So in verse 4, Abraham goes, he takes his nephew Lot with him, and he goes to the land of Canaan. And so uh, the story continues on, and I've just summarized for the sake of time. So they go to Canaan, and they arrive there. 
Now, God's mission here consists of occupying land, and God tells Abraham, stay here, and I will bless you through your children. God has a mission for you, just as Abraham's story teaches, uh, just as God had a mission for Abraham. And his story teaches us a couple lessons about how to discover God's mission. When you read through the passages, you find that God's mission is communicated to Abraham through his audible word. And so the lesson here is to spend time in God's word. As you read through the passages of scripture, you will be impressed by the spirit of God, whether it's through an example, a principle, or a command, and something in your heart will resonate with the word of God, and you will feel a sense of God calling you to something. See, the Bible challenges us to make God's mission the center of our lives. And I think this is challenging because our natural tendency is to make our lives the center of God's mission. God, please bless the work of my hands, my initiatives. But here, the text challenges us to ask the question, God, what do you want with my life? What do you want with my family? This one Adjustment of submitting to the mission of God can change the trajectory of your whole life. The question is, how do we discover it? Someone once shared with me three principles of discovering God's will for your life, and they are conviction, confirmation, and consistency. uh, Conviction, confirmation, and consistency. We've just talked about reading God's word and having a sense of conviction. Abraham and Sarah, they sense, they hear God's word, and it leaves a conviction upon their heart. When you look at the story of Abraham, you'll notice that mission is repeated. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 7. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, and he basically continues the same promise. The word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but a son will be your own, uh, a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir, and he continues on that promise. He says, I will bless you, occupy the land of Canaan. Now, if you continue on in the story, you'll find that God repeats this mission several times to Abraham. And this is how the mission is confirmed, because it is repeated. Next, the mission of God becomes clear to Abraham and Sarah because they actually give birth to a son. When you look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 4, the Bible says, Abraham went and he was 75 years old when God gives him the initial call to go to Canaan and to build a family there. And if you look at Genesis 21, verse 5, it says that Abraham is 100 years old when Isaac was born to him. So it took him 25 years to realize God's promise. But as Isaac was born, it confirmed to Abraham, this mission is real. Can you imagine God saying, go build a family, but then you're infertile? How does that work? If you look at Genesis 23, near the end of Abraham's story, in verse 6, you'll notice that the people in the community around Abraham, they call him a prince. You are a mighty prince among us. See, by then, Abraham had a son. He accumulated wealth. He accumulated influence and personnel. Abraham had a small tribe. And so when God tells him, you're going to become the father of a great nation, that consistency allows him to realize God's mission for him. 
So the three C's of discovering God's mission for you, conviction, confirmation, consistency. You know, when I was in my early 20s, I was exploring the idea, do I go into ministry or do I not go into ministry? And I never would have thought I'm going to become a pastor. When I was a teenager, it just, that was the furthest thing from my mind. I caught up with Torby earlier this week and he had just finished book week and he was still in costume and I asked him, so, you know, what's your costume about and what book is this covering? And he said, oh, Wolfenstein. And I was like, Wolfenstein? And I was like, wasn't that a video game? He's like, yeah, it was a video game. I was like, wasn't that like one of the first first shooter first-person shooter games, and we then have this conversation about gaming, and my mind was transported to the 90s, right? And I don't know how many of you have played Wolfenstein, but it's like, it's not even 8-bit or something like that, right? It's like 2-bit or something. And anyway, as Torby and I are chatting about this, he turns to me and he goes, I wouldn't have expected a pastor talking to me about Wolfenstein. And I was like, well... To defend myself, I was in sixth grade. <laughs> Back then, ministry was the furthest thing from my mind. And he goes, fair point. <laughs> and, and the reality is, Torby, I wouldn't have expected myself to even become a pastor. <laughs> and so there's this wrestling of like, do I want to commit myself to this work? And I remember hearing a sermon from a pastor, and he was talking about the undelivered letter. And he ended the sermon by saying, if nobody delivers this letter, who will hear it? And I sat in there thinking, I I thought about my friends, I thought about my family, and I just thought, if I don't make this first step towards God, how will they ever know this is serious? Maybe there are people that I can reach. And there was kind of this sense of conviction of, maybe this is something that I should do. As I kind of wrestled with this decision, months later, um, I had someone that I really respected and he pulled me aside and he said, Roy, I know you've been thinking about entering into ministry and I just want to tell you, I think you should. I think you should enter into ministry. And for me, that was a confirmation moment because on one hand, it was something that I thought I should do and on the other hand, it was something that someone else said, you should do this. Then there was consistency. As I was working through the decision of becoming a pastor, I realized that people that I was giving Bible studies to, they were actually drawing closer to Christ. And so I thought, you know what? If I can lead these few people into a closer relationship to to Jesus, maybe I can lead other people as well. And so lo and behold, I'm here. Now, (coughs) I realize and accept that stating, God wants me to be a pastor, it's my mission, is incredibly conceited. Um, you know, how are you supposed to interact with me? Because I just said, I'm holy. God wants me to be here. Now, how are you supposed to react? Especially if you're like, well, I don't want you here. And the reason why I say this is because being aware of God is important because God's mission is difficult. And there are moments where you don't want to continue on in the journey. You want to say, stuff it. And it's awkward championing, it's awkward championing God's mission in a world that is not pro-God. And it's in these moments when we want to throw in the towel and God's work in your life will remind you, this is not about you. It's about God and it's about his mission. And so submitting to that call raises an awareness of what God does and his power and his glory is supposed to increase. So God, and I hope this is clear today, has a mission for you. God has a mission for your family. 
And his word and his spirit will lead you in that mission. Well, Abraham and Sarah respond to God's mission. And they make the decision, no matter what, we're going to stay the course. And regardless of how difficult it is, we're staying in this land and we're going to build a family. Well, when we fast forward a few years, Abraham's son Isaac is now of age to get married. And Abraham's servant comes to Abraham and he says, Let's say I go find a wife in this area that you want me to go. What if she doesn't want to come back to Canaan? What if she says, I want to meet this person that you want me to marry? I mean, that's pretty reasonable, right? And so he says, can I then please take your son Isaac and take him to see this woman? If ever I find someone who's even remotely interested. We pick up in Genesis chapter 24, verse 5 to 9, and I've just narrated that, and we continue on. And if, if, I, if I were to summarize this text, and you can read the first line, Abraham says, make sure that you do not take my son back there. <laughs> and that gives you the context for the rest, of the rest of the passage. And basically, Abraham says, swear to me that you will not take my son to wherever you are. And in the Bible, that, that phrase, swear to me, is a very serious, it's a very serious phrase. Generally speaking in the Bible, even Jesus himself says, hey, don't swear by anything. Just say yes or no. But Abraham goes, no, you need to swear to me. <laughs> very significant. See, Abraham knows if there's anything that will pull my son away from this mission, it's love for another human being. And so he says, you cannot take my son. She's got to come here. Now in the story, there's a series of circumstances and God leads Abraham's servant to a woman who then says, okay, I will come. And she marries Isaac, which is different culture or different time, right? But that's how the decision was made. Now, we can look at the story and see Abraham is a bit controlling. But what I want to point out is his commitment. He wants to make sure that as the generations come and go, they're committed to the same goal. Now, Abraham is not flawless, and even though he shows faith in important parts of his story, he also makes mistakes. And I think his mistakes in the context of mission are important. There are two times when Sarah's beauty in a certain local context catch the attention of powerful men. The first story, Abraham and Sarah are in the land of Egypt, and the Egyptians are enamored with Sarah. And they ask the question, who is this woman? And Abraham, rather than saying, she's my wife, God has a mission for us, back off, goes, she's my sister, and she gets taken away and into the house of Pharaoh. And God has to then save Sarah. And if it weren't bad enough to do this once, it happens twice. Fast forward years, there's a king named Abimelech, and he sees Sarah, and he says, who is this beautiful woman? And Abraham says, she's my sister. And Abraham takes Sarah into his home, and God visits Abimelech in a dream and says, if you don't let go of this woman, I'm going to end you, in a nutshell. And God has to supernaturally save Sarah. This happens twice. And my point is this, even though Abraham makes mistakes, because his life is dedicated to the mission of God, God is able to intervene, and he overcomes Abraham's deficit. 
You know, God's mission, it's also a promise. When God calls you to do something, He then fulfills the ability to achieve that mission. And Abraham's story and his mistakes teach us that. You know, my family and I, we have a mission here in Melbourne, and that's to lead as many people to Christ as we possibly can. And there are times where it's challenging. I think one of the most challenging things that we've faced is uh, integrating into the community of Coburg. Here are two Korean Americans who are very American and very Korean and very Christian, and we live in Coburg, which is very not American, Korean, or Christian. <laughs> and so here we are integrating into a faith, uh, into a community, a secular community, and first day of school for Micah, we're trying to get to know the other parents, and I don't know if you remember playground politics when you were back in school, but when you're dealing with parents, it's heightened like tenfold. And the first question is like, hi, how are you doing? I'm so-and-so's mother or father. What do you do? What do I say? I can only say I'm a pastor and immediately shut down. Okay, thank you. Going the other way. <laughs> it's like, how do we overcome this deficit of building relationships with people when we're already at a disadvantage. And then you have to factor in culture, right? Understanding Australian. I'm Australian now, but eight years ago, or okay, Mike is now nine, so let's say five years ago as we were actually even in childcare. This is not super important. <laughs> Sorry. It was difficult to acclimatize and to understand and to just communicate in a way that made sense for me and to the person that I'm talking to. But as time went by, we made the decision, hey, they, the, the school needs volunteers for uh, parents to come and help kids learn how to read. Let's volunteer. And so we went and volunteered year after year. Um, yeah, just a couple weeks ago, we had, or last week, Micah had his grade three camp. I put my hand up and I said, yeah, I'll be a parent volunteer. And I'll tell you, this is one of the most missional things, it's probably the most missional thing I did all year. Because immediately in the parents' WhatsApp group, I go, hey, I'm going into the, I'm going to the grade three camp. Like six people are like, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I was like, okay, they're clearly their parents were worried about their kids because they're leaving home for the first time. So then we arrive at the camp and I just text message, hey, we're here safely. Immediately five, six responses. Thank you. We're worried. Like, is the bus going to get in an accident? What's going to happen? You can imagine the first time sending your kids off for three days at a time. And so as I kept in touch with these parents throughout that three-day period, I can't tell you how meaningful it was for them and for myself. And just responding to that call, God, I feel like you have a purpose for us here. We're not just living our lives. We're intentionally trying to build relationships with people in this community. You know, we're now at the point now. Uh, that was an excellent sentence. We are now at the place where we can go on holidays with Micah's friends at school and their families. It's like, hey, do you want to go to Phillip Island together? Yeah, sure. They know we're Christian. They know we're pastors. And so then... I would say, hey, just letting you know, like, we have some faith practices that are a part of our routine. Like, we have family worship. You're welcome to join us. You don't have to join us. And, you know, there are times where they do join us. And that's a, that's a really awkward thing to say, do you want to join us for family worship? <laughs> it is. And my point is that people join us. And that, that's a crazy thing for me. 
God's pro, excuse me, God's mission is also his promise to fulfill his mission. So even though Abraham struggles at times, God covers the deficit. I want to contrast Abraham's life and Lot's life. If you go back to that opening text and you look at verse 4, when God called Abraham and Sarah and his family to respond to him, Lot is a part of that promise. Because Abraham goes, hey, Lot, do you want to come with me? And Lot says, yes. But as time goes by, Lot is not able to maintain that relationship with Abraham. Genesis chapter 13, verses 5 to 7 says, Now Lot, who was moving about with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together. For their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abraham's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in, uh, living in the land at that time. So here, Lot is a recipient of God's blessing because he also joins in God's mission. And technically, he could have benefited from God's mission, but he chooses to separate. We continue on in Genesis 13, verses 8 to 11. And in summary, Abraham says, Lot, you choose first because there's too much quarreling between us. You choose the land. Lot Lot looks around and he says, I want to go towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And he heads to that place and moves close to Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham takes the other area near Jordan and he moves that way. Now the story continues on that Lot first moves close to Sodom and Gomorrah and then he moves into the city. And what you find is that Lot gets tired of being a shepherd. We just read before that Lot had great possessions. He had sheep. He had herdsmen. He had possessions but later on when you pick up the story you find lot in a city in a house what happened to all the shepherds what happened to all his sheep lot decided to cash out because he wanted the city life now i get i get it i live near melbourne i love living near melbourne you know we used to live in west melbourne and um it's right across the street from the flagstaff gardens and right across the street from the vic markets and you know on a wednesday night Right when Vic markets are about to close, we would go, oh, excuse me, the night market. Right as the night market is about to close, if you go at about 9.30 or 10 o'clock, all the vendors are just trying to get rid of all of their, get rid of everything. You want a platter full of pastries for $5? Like, yes, I do. Like, there's so many benefits to living in a city where you never run out of things to do. White night, you don't have to look for parking because you live in the city. Just walk down, enjoy white night, and then walk back home. It was great. I get the draw to the city. But this one decision to replace God's mission with Lot's own comfort changes the trajectory of his whole life. And for the sake of time, I won't go through the whole story in text. I'll just narrate it to you. You can read it in Genesis Genesis 18 and 19. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's a famous story in the Bible. Fire destroys everything. Lot loses his possessions, he loses members of his family, and he ends up living in a cave with his two daughters who do not treat him well. They end up taking advantage of their father, and he then has to father his own sons who are born from his daughters. It's a messed up story. 
But if you look at Genesis chapter 19, verses 37 and 38, the text says, The older daughter had a son. She named him Moab, and he's the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son. She named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. And my point in sharing this story is that even though Lot has a sad story, one could argue that his progeny becomes notable and they become nations in history. See, Lot also ended up being the father of a great nation. But the quality of life between Abraham and Lot, it's different. And that's the best way that I can illustrate the difference between making God the center of your life, uh, making God's mission the center of your life, and not having God's mission at the center of your life. So yes, Abraham's mission was fulfilled through his family. But I want to quickly add, having a family is not God's mission. God's mission is varied, and I like that about Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, and I'll close on this. Paul says, Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, It is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. It's so interesting to read Paul's take on marriage because Christianity as a whole, we tend to elevate and even idolize the nuclear family. And what I mean by that is if somebody stays single their whole life and they attend church, it is normal for people to say, when are you going to get married? When are you going to find somebody? And it's, it's, it's almost as if we treat people who are single as if there's something wrong with them or they're at a disadvantage. And what's interesting about the way that Paul handles this, he says, I want everybody to be like me, a single person apparently. And he says, if you're weak, then you can get married. And I just love that, yes, in Genesis, we have the example of Adam and Eve as an example of family. But in the New Testament, Paul elevates singlehood and says, this is the ideal. You want to do more mission? You want to be at the center of God's will? Stay single. But if you're weak, then you can get married. <laughs> Sorry to the married folk. Right? Paul said it, not me. I'm just, I'm just communicating what he said. And, and, and my point is this. You know, we have these special days in church Mother's Day, Father's Day, we have these different celebrations. And by default, being in a nuclear family allows you to enjoy these celebrations more than if you're single. But the reality is God's mission isn't necessarily about that. Yeah, I've got a friend, uh, and I talk about Celia a lot. Um, but here's an individual who, brilliant person, who studied medicine, became a doctor, and started practicing as a doctor. Decided, yeah, this is not for me. Went back to school, studied law, became a lawyer, and began practicing law. Her back went out, and basically she could not work. And so here is this late young lady who is single, who cannot work, and now she has to ask herself the question, God, what do I do with my life? And she went one step further and said, God, what do you want me to do with my life? And over the past years... This person has been living in Alice Springs, writing books that are influencing denominations. And I'm not, that, that's not an exaggeration. 
literally influencing denominations to become more spiritual. There are groups of people that travel out to the middle of Australia to go on spiritual retreat to then ask themselves the question also, God, what do you want me to do with my life? You know, I think of this person who is single and who is just living life to the fullest, even though they're basically bedridden for the majority of the time. And so it's my prayer today that as you consider what it means to participate in God's mission, may you experience his word in your life. May it lead to conviction. May you find confirmation of what God wants you to do. And may you find consistency in, in that which God calls you to do. May God bless you as you embark on his mission. Father God, as we consider your mission, as we consider your call for us to respond to you, to make your will the center of our lives, please clarify what that is. Help us to seek you, to know you, and to be able to be a, a light in this community. Father, there's such a great need for people to actually know you. And there's so much misunderstanding about who you are. And Father, I just want to um, pray that you would mobilize us, that you would use us uh, to be that light uh, to the communities around us. We pray this in your name. Amen.